Now, friends, if you have your Bible as the notes turn to 1 Thessalonians, we're back in the New Testament, and we've come now to an epistle that is well along in the New Testament, almost to the end of Paul's epistles, as far as the arrangement in the New Testament. But actually, we now take up the first epistle that Paul wrote, and he wrote it to the Thessalonians. So today, I'd like to give you some background that will help us to understand and appreciate this very wonderful epistle. Now, as to Thessalonica, it was what was known as a Roman colony. Now, Rome had a way of, as they would capture a people, they never attempted to do everything that I think today that we try to do, not for people we capture, but we are trying to Americanize people throughout the world, as if that would be ideal. I have my doubts whether it be ideal or not. And there was a time when we sent missionaries, not to try to make them like we are, but to try to make them children of God through faith in Christ. But today, all that has changed as far as our program is concerned. Now, Rome was much wiser than that. Rome did not attempt to change the culture or to change the habits or the customs or the language of people they took. But in these different areas, uh, ranged geographically and in a strategic spot, they would start a colony, generally a city that was there. That meant that that city or that area would adopt Roman laws, Roman customs, Roman ways, and you would see in the local department stores the latest thing that were wearing in Rome. And it was very much like Rome. Now, Thessalonica was a very important city in that day. And by the way, it's still in existence, called Salonica today, and still a very important place. Now, Thessalonica was a Roman colony, which means they live like they did in Rome. And it was very important in the life of the Roman Empire. It was a hundred miles west of Philippi. That's where we left Paul the last time. He'd gone to Philippi and had established there a church. Now, he moved on a hundred miles to Thessalonica. Now, it was north of Athens, and it was the chief city of Macedonia. Cicero, the great Roman, said... Thessalonica is in the bosom of the empire. That means right in the very center and the heart of the empire. Now, it was first named Therma because of the hot springs that were in that area. But in 316 B.C., Cassandra, and he was one of the generals of Alexander the Great. There were four generals that divided the empire of Alexander, and Cassander took Macedonia, that is the home base, by the way. And he named Therma, or as we know it today as Salonica, he named it Thessalonica in memory of his wife, who was a half-sister of Alexander the Great. Now, this city was a very important city. And the church in Thessalonica was rather a model church. We are told here in this First epistle, first chapter, verse 7, "...so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia." That is, in that entire 
area that we would call Greece today. This church was an example, and it was an example for Corinth, which is in that area also. That's in 2 Corinthians 8, and you'll find that in the first five verses. This church was one of the first that was established on Paul's second missionary journey. Now, let me pick up where we left off of Paul before. Now, you'll recall that on his second missionary journey, he and Barnabas had separated, and Paul took Silas with him, and along the route, he picked up Timothy, and Dr. Luke joined the group. But he visited the churches in Galatia, tempted to make a wider circle, and there was a tremendous population in that area, and he was going over into what we call today Turkey. We think of it as Asia Minor. And he intended in that area, apparently, to carry on mission work. And I think that's obvious, because on his third missionary journey, he probably did his greatest missionary work with Ephesus as the headquarters. But the Spirit of God at this time put up a roadblock, would not let him go south. And he attempted to go up into Bithynia along the southern coast of the Black Sea. And again, the Spirit of God put up a roadblock. He can't go north. He can't go south. He moves toward the west, comes to Troas, waits for orders, has the vision of the man of Macedonia, crosses over to Philippi, finds out the man of Macedonia was a woman by the name of Lydia that was a seller of purple. She ran the department store there. And Paul led her to the Lord, a group that were there. And then the church was established. Paul left Philippi. Now he comes to Thessalonica. And he's in Thessalonica. Actually, we're told three Sabbath days. In the 17th chapter of Acts, at verse 2, we're told that he reasoned in the synagogue three Sabbath days. Now, that means he had to be there less than one month. And in that one month, Paul did a Herculean task. He did a mission work. He led multitudes to Christ. When I say multitudes, I mean that. Paul was an effective missionary. Now, he established a church. And in that time, he not only organized a local church, but he taught them the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And we'll see that as we get into this epistle and the next one. He taught them things that today, in churches that have been in existence 100 years, they know nothing about the rapture of the church and the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom here on this earth. It's just a foggy notion to a great many that are in churches a hundred years old. This church was not even a month old. And Paul is making known the great doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, he left Thessalonica, and I'm putting that mildly. He was run out of town. He had to leave. Now, he went down to Berea. He did a work there took ship and went over to Athens, and he ministered there. I don't know how long he was there. I noticed the New Schofield Bible says that it was shortly. Well, I don't know where they get shortly, but that's a relative term. Shortly could mean any time from one day to a thousand years, but I don't think it was a thousand years, and I don't think it was one day. I think months went by. And then Paul went down to Corinth, and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to come and bring word concerning the Thessalonians. All right? They joined him in Corinth. 
And I'm sure there was a time lapse, because we'll find out in the fourth chapter some of the saints, some of the ones that had come to Christ, died in the meantime. And there was a real question whether they were going to be in the rapture or not. And that, to me, would prove that Paul taught the soon coming of Christ, the imminent coming of Christ for his church. Well, anyway, we find that there were some questions raised. Now, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to answer these questions and to instruct these people further and to comfort them. They needed that. And there is generally given a threefold purpose for the writing of this epistle. And that is to confirm young converts in the great elementary truths of the gospel. And then the second reason to condition them to go on under holy living. And that's very important, by the way. And to comfort them regarding the return of Christ. And we'll see that when we get to it. Now, there are several ways of outlining this epistle. One of the ways, and it's a good one, is the coming of Christ is an inspiring hope. That's in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, the coming of Christ is a working hope. And then in chapter 3, the coming of Christ is a purifying hope. And then in chapter 4, the coming of Christ is a comforting hope. And then in chapter 5, the coming of Christ is a rousing hope. And that's a very good division. However, I don't use it. I personally have attempted to divide it a little different way. And those of you that have our notes and outlines, you have the outline before you. But for those of you that have not yet written in for your notes and outlines, well, let me give you our outline. We have in chapter 1 the Christian's attitude toward the return of Christ. And in chapter 2, the Christian's reward at the return of Christ. And chapter 3, down into chapter 4, verse 12, the Christian's life and the return of Christ. You see, the bulk of this epistle has to do with a Christian living in relation to the rapture of the church. There are a lot of people today want to argue prophecy, want to argue about it, but they don't want to spend much time looking at the great truth that if you really believe in the coming of Christ, that you'll find it's a purifying hope. He that hath this hope, John said, purifies himself. It'll affect your living. I don't care about how enthusiastic and exciting you can get over the great truth of the rapture of the church. I want to know how you're living. <laughs> it's something that it should get right down where we're living today. And we're going to be talking about that. Now, we have not only the Christian's life and the return of Christ, but we have the Christian's death and the return of Christ. And that's in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And then chapter 5, the Christian's actions. Now, all the way from chapter 1, attitude to the Christian's actions in view of the return of Christ. And again, it's the life that tells whether you're a premillennialist or not. It's not how excited you can argue or how red in the face you can get when you get into controversy over this. I find a great many people, they get all worked up over the coming of Christ. 
But you don't get worked up over it. You're to demonstrate it in works down here. And he's going to talk a great deal, by the way, about that. Now, I think I should make this distinction also that's very important. In the first epistle of the Thessalonians, the emphasis is upon the rapture of the church the coming of Christ to take his church out of the world. Now, in 2 Thessalonians, the emphasis is going to shift to the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And there's a great deal of difference of being caught up to meet the Lord in the air and for him to come down to the earth to establish his kingdom. And as I've said before, there's a lot of upside-down theologians today. They have him coming down when they should be caught up. And we need to make that distinction. Paul makes it, and we shall see it here. Now we come to chapter 1, and we have here the coming of Christ is an inspiring hope. And in the first four verses, we have here the introduction. Now, will you notice how Paul begins this epistle? Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very marvelous verse here, and it's typical of Paul's other epistles, but there's some differences here, and we need to call attention to them. Now, you notice when Paul writes them, he joins with him Silvanus and Timotheus, Silas and Timothy, because you see they have just returned to Paul from Thessalonica, and Paul joins them in what he's writing to the Thessalonians, letting them know that they are together in this. And again, it's very marvelous, I think, that way Paul joins these men that to us would have been unknown had not Paul the Apostle associated himself with these men. And it's a very noble gesture on Paul's part. He's always identifying himself with the brethren. He did that. He's not aloof way up high above them. And there's something that we need to be very careful about. Don't put your preacher on a pedestal. Put him right down with you today. We ministers are responsible, I think, for some of that nonsense today. I know when I entered the ministry, I think I've told you this before, but it's so ridiculous. I got a Prince Albert coat. That's a long coattail. I wore a wing collar, and I wore generally either a white or a black necktie and a very white shirt in front. And I looked like, I think, one of these little mules looking over a whitewashed fence, by the way, when I stood up in the pulpit. And I think maybe I felt like that wearing that garb. And then one day, it just came to me that I'm not to dress differently than my officers, my members of my church. I looked down at them, and I didn't see any of them with a ridiculous garb on, a robe or Prince Albert coat, making yourself different from them, because you're not different 
from them. And you ought not to be, because preachers, the ones I know, are very much in the way of human beings. And we need to be right down where they are. Now, I don't think God today is asking me to live any different, my brother, than you are called upon to live. Not a bit. He's asking me in this respect that when I'm teaching the Word of God here, to be very conscious of the fact I'm giving out His Word and that I am actually acting in His behalf today. And He wants me to be very careful about that. But as far as my living is concerned... I'm to live out yonder with my brethren. And I wish we could get that over today. And, of course, we preachers have done a great deal to make a distinction between clergy and laity. That's a false distinction as far as the Word of God is concerned. I don't feel that it's there at all. And I'm very frank to say this, that a paid ministry has been the curse of the church. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't think it can be done otherwise today in a day of specialization. But after all, the heresies of the church have come in through a paid ministry. We have to recognize that. There are two things today that are dangerous. It is a minister that tries to lift himself up, and the other is a layman who tries to be an authority on the Bible and who has not really studied the Bible but he's gone off on some tangent. It's so easy to go off on a tangent. And may I say to you, that has been the greatest discipline for me, has been to take the total Word of God and teach it. Now, I believe if you'll take the total Word of God and teach it, well, you have to play on every key that's on the organ, and you have to pull out every stop. You just can't ride your hobby. Now, there are a lot of things I love to emphasize when we get to them. But I have to emphasize everything if I'm going to take the Word of God. And I wish we had that kind of discipline in the church today, that every church had to go through the Bible. It would keep us from going down the garden path the wrong way many, many times. I love this introduction. This is the first epistle Paul wrote. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians. This is the church of the Thessalonians. It's not the church of the Philippians. They're a little different than Thessalonica. And they are going to live a little differently and do their thing just a little bit differently. But the church in Thessalonica is just like the church in Philippi. It's in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, somebody says, but this is something new in God the Father. He hadn't said that before. Well, this is the first time he's written, and he said it once, and that's going to be enough. He won't go over this again. Why? Because the Lord Jesus said, I want the world to know, when he prayed to the Father, that they are in me and I'm in them just as the Father and I are one, and I'm in the Father and the Father in me. So that when you're in Christ, you're in God the Father also. That's a very safe place today. There's not a safety deposit box anywhere that's as safe as that. Now he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is his formal introduction that he has in all of his epistle. Grace comes first and then the peace of God. And it's from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ.
Now we come to verse 2. Paul says, "...we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers." Now, you'll find that he used this same expression to the Philippians. It was couched there in a little different verbiage, but it's the same thing. Paul prayed for all of his churches that he had founded. Paul had quite a prayer list, and if you want to make a prayer list, you could do it. And if you did, you'd be surprised how many different churches, individuals, groups of people that Paul prayed for. Now, he gave thanks for this church because of many things, and one of the most important was because they were quite an example. They were more or less of a model church, and he gives thanks to God for them. Paul was great at giving thanks. Now, we come in verse 3 to one of the, I think, most remarkable verses in the Bible, and it follows a pattern of the Apostle Paul that you'll find in his writings. He emphasized the number three, which is the Trinity. Now, I think that's quite obvious. And he says here, "...remembering without ceasing, first, your work of faith, number two, and labor of love, three, and patience of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Now, let's pause there for a few moments, because I consider this a very important verse of Scripture, and it contains a wealth of meaning. Paul here associates three Christian graces together, faith and love and hope. Now, you'll recall in 1 Corinthians 13, we have these three brought together again. Now abideth faith, hope, love, these three. Greatest of these is love. And so here we find that Paul is taking these three and emphasizing them, and he'll mention them again in this very chapter. Now, I think it's quite interesting the way that he does this and the way it occurs in Scripture. I was having lunch up in New Jersey several years ago with a man that was an outstanding scientist. It's my understanding that he designed the heat shield that is on the capsule that comes back into space when they go out, you know, either into space to circle the earth or to go to the moon, for that matter. And he, at lunch, he said to me, he says, "'Have you ever noticed that the universe that we live in is divided up into a trinity?' And I said, "'No, what do you mean by that?' Well, he said, "'Look at this for a moment.'" He says, "'You and I live in a physical universe today that's made up of three things—time, space, and matter.'" And then he asked me the question, can you think of a fourth? Well, I couldn't. Maybe you can, but I couldn't think of a fourth. Time, space, and matter. And he didn't stop there. He says, have you ever stopped to think that time is divided into three parts, past, present, and future? And again, he says, can you think of a fourth? Well, I can't. And then he says, what about space? 
Well, I couldn't think of that. And he says, well, space is divided into length and breadth and height. And he says, can you think of another? He says, they speak of a fourth dimension, but he says it doesn't happen to be in this material universe. Now, this universe you and I live in bears the mark of the Trinity. And the very interesting thing is that the Word of God does the same thing, I think, all the way through. Have you noticed that Paul in this very epistle here speaks of the fact that man is a trinity? Now, I think it's a little different than we interpret it today, but I'll get to that when we get to it. Over in the fifth chapter, verse 23, "...the very God of peace sanctify you holy, and I pray, God, that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." Three parts of man that he mentions there. So man is apparently a trinity. Now, you'll recall that back at the very beginning, God brought man and woman together, and he said, now this is interesting, he says, you two shall be one flesh. And how do they become one flesh? In the child. Two plus one equal three. It'll do it every time. And the very interesting thing, three lines always make a complete plane. If those of you that have studied plane geometry know that'll always happen. Now, have you ever noticed also in Genesis that there were only three sons of Adam that are named? And I do not mean to say that Adam and Eve should have been given the pill. They were not, because I think they had more than three sons. They probably had a hundred. And don't be alarmed at that. After all, they're starting this thing off. And the three sons that are mentioned are Cain, Abel, and Seth. No fourth son. And you have the three graces of the Christian life. These three, Paul says, faith, hope, and love. And I think that you could find in this verse 3 here the definition of the Christian life. The past is the work of faith. And the present, a labor of love. And the future, patience of hope. Now, that is the picture that we have presented for us here. And this is the biography of a Christian. These are the abiding, permanent, and eternal features of the Christian life. Now, they're abstract nouns. They're way up yonder. I'm way down here. What is faith? What is love? What is hope? How can we get them out of space of theory into the reality of life down here? How can we make them very concrete instead of abstract qualities? Remember the story of the contractor who loved children, and he put on a sidewalk one day and finished it in the afternoon. He came back the next morning, and some children had put their bare feet in the concrete. And he was just hot about it. He was very angry and talking very loud. And the man came up to him and says, I thought that you loved children. He says, I love them in the abstract, not in the concrete. And now the question here is, how are we going to get this down in the concrete? Now, Paul takes these three words from the beautiful isle of somewhere, and he puts them in shoe leather. He gets them down here where the rubber soles of our shoes meet the sidewalks of our hometown. And he fleshes up these abstract qualities by taking them out of the morgue of the never-never land. 
Now, will you notice how he does it? In verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope. Now, will you drop down with me to verse 9 of this chapter? For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. Now, here are the three steps in the lives of the Thessalonians. How ye turn to God from idols, work of faith, to serve the living and true God, the labor of love. And third, to wait for his Son from heaven. That's the patience of hope. Here we have these three again, if you please. And now, the very strange thing that we have here is that you have, first of all, a work of faith. Now, what do you mean by the work of faith? Because it's been given to us that it's by grace are ye saved through faith, and not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet we're told here about the work of faith. What does he mean by that? I think that what Paul is doing here is making it very clear that he and James do not contradict each other. After all, James, he says, I'll show you by my works my faith. And that's the work of faith, is it not? And that's the way you prove it, prove it to others. And somebody has said that James wrote his epistle in order to contradict Paul. Well, He didn't do that because, actually, James is the first epistle that's written in the New Testament. And certainly Paul didn't write to contradict him. They're both talking about the same thing. Now, faith is the response of the soul of man to the Word of God. And when a man responds to the Word of God, we find that then he walks by faith. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. And that is the thing you will recall that the Lord Jesus in the 6th chapter of John, verse 29, they came to him with the question, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered, said unto them, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Now he says that, You don't come to God with works. You come by faith. But a living faith, then, presents itself in the life that is lived. You see, the Lord Jesus, and I think we have another fine example, and I'm trying to illustrate this out of the Word of God. You will recall that these men that the Lord Jesus called went fishing, and they caught nothing. The Lord Jesus came by. And he told them to launch out in the deep and let down your nets. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we've toiled all night and we've taken nothing. Now, that is the judgment of an expert fisherman who knew that little sea of Galilee. And that's a statement of fact. That's a declaration of naked truth. We've fished all night, we've caught nothing, and we know this sea And there's no use going back out there. But notice what Simon Peter says. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. May I say to you that he says now, I'll go back and fish again. Friends, that's the work of faith. And today, that is needed. What is the work of faith? 
It's acting upon the Word of God. What is the work of God? It's to believe on Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Lord Jesus said that. The Word of God says that. And you act on what the Word of God says. And when you do, that's the thing that presents works to the world today. A living faith presents the thing that we're talking about here, the work of faith. That's the work of faith. Now, may I say that we have that same thing illustrated in the life of Cain and Abel. Now, what's wrong with Cain? Well, he's a sinner by nature. But he's also a sinner by choice and act. By faith, we're told that Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. How? Because he was a nice little Sunday school boy? No, not that at all. He was a sinner, but he responded to the Word of God, and he believed God. And when he believed God, then he was saved. My friend, that's what faith is. It connects you to God. It communicates to your heart the Word of God, and you respond. And that's what conversion is. It's to believe God. And now, notice what happened. How ye turn to God from idols. Now, Paul didn't go over into Thessalonica and say to them, I don't think it's nice for you people to worship idols, and that's a very terrible thing to do. He never said that. He went over there and preached Christ. And idolatry wasn't repulsive to these people. They turned to God from idols. When he presented Christ, they believed God, and they turned to God, and when they turned to God, they automatically turned from idols. May I say to you that it's when you believe God. And I have several people that have written letters to me. One lady from down in Santa Ana, here in Southern California, in Orange County, she wrote and says, you converted me. I didn't convert anybody. A man came up to me here not long ago where I was holding meetings, and he says, you know, you saved me many years ago, and I'll never forget you. Well, I said, I appreciate you not forgetting me, but I never saved you. I can't do that. I said, all I do is present the Word of God, and you believe the Word of God. And then the Spirit of God did something. This is quite wonderful, friends. Then you have the labor of love. Now, what is the labor of love? Well, God does not save by love. He saves by grace. And that's love in action. You see, labor is foreign and contrary and opposite of love. It just doesn't go along with him. But you see, love will labor. And when it does, it just doesn't seem to be labor. Like that little girl was carrying a heavy baby. And a man, when she went by, said to her, says, Little girl, isn't that baby too heavy for you? And she said, No, he's my brother. <laughs> Makes all the difference in the world. It's a labor of love. And the Lord Jesus, he put it right on the line. He says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And you don't love him? Well, I don't think it's worthwhile to try to keep him, friends. Several years ago, my daughter and I were riding into Los Angeles, going to the church. She was helping us out down there. And we were stuck in the traffic on the freeway. And I said to her, I said, look, when you look around here, all these people, have you noticed going to work this morning, nobody's happy? Everybody's got a tense look on their face and they're anxious, 
and they're uptight. Everybody is. They're going to a job that 99 out of 100 hate the job they're doing. I said, you know, it's wonderful to do what you love to do. That's a labor of love. And friends, if church work to you today is a great burden, I believe God would say to you, I think the Lord Jesus would say to you, give it up, brother. (laughs) Don't worry about it. He doesn't want it like that. You're to love him. That's a labor of love. And that should characterize the life of the believer today. One time when Dwight L. Moody came home, they said to him, cancel your next meeting. You look so weary. You're so tired. Well, he made this tremendous statement. He says, I'm weary in the work, but I'm not weary of the work. It's wonderful to get weary in the work of God, but not get weary of it. Oh, I tell you, love to God is expressed in your obedience. And you can talk all you want to about being a dedicated Christian. And I'm so tired of hearing people say, I'm a dedicated Christian. Prove it, brother. And you prove it by your love for him. And your love manifests itself in obedience. And believe me, you obey God. And that's the thing that is so important. Now, let me come to this last one, patience of hope. And we have it here, you see. They turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They loved him, you see. And now they love the Lord Jesus. Now, the third is they're waiting for his son from heaven. And you have here the patience of hope. Now, every man today lives with some hope for the future and There are a lot of people that don't seem to have much hope today, but we ought to. And Martin Luther put it like this, everything that's done in the world is done by hope. And Sophocles, the pagan, says it's hope which maintains most of mankind. Martin says there's no medicine like hope, no incentive so great, no tonic so powerful as expectation of something better tomorrow. And Alexander Pope says, hope springs eternal in the human breast. And Thomas Jefferson says, I steer my bark with hope in the head, leaving fear astern. And Carlyle, the Scotch philosopher, says, man is properly speaking, based upon hope. He has no other possession but hope. This world of his is emphatically the place of hope. And yet there are multitudes of people today that have no hope hope at all. Oh, what a glorious, wonderful picture that we have here to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. And that, my friend, is the blessed hope today. Multitudes today have hope that man can resolve all of his problems, bring peace and prosperity to the world. But he can't do that. You're chasing a will-o'-wisp of happiness. It'll shatter like a bubble. Many are following today a pseudo-pied piper playing I'm forever blowing bubbles. God put man out of paradise. Man was a sinner. God did not let him live forever in sin. Every age is a time of cosmic crisis. What's your hope today, my friend? Is your hope in a political party? Is your hope in some man-made organization? But God have mercy on a man today whose hope rests upon some little frail bark that man is paddling. Oh, may I say to you that 
I'd love to carry a placard today on which it would be written, All things work together for good to them that love God to those called according to his eternal and holy purpose. Oh, my friend, this is a glorious trinity here, and it is the biography of the church in Thessalonica. I hope it's a biography of your church and my church today. Now, Paul, in verse 4, he takes up another great truth. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And here we go again with that word election. And you will recall that back in Ephesians, in the first chapter there, and at verse 4, we dealt with it there. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, when we dealt with that before, I received letters from some folk who said that I was rather weak in emphasizing election, that I soft-pedaled it. Others thought I was rather extreme, that I went too far in talking about it. And since I got both of those reactions, one on one side, one on the other, I came to the conclusion I must be just right, because one saw it as extreme one way and one extreme another. And I knew it couldn't be both, so it must be somewhere in the middle, and that must be just about right. Well, anyway, here we go again. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And Paul didn't mind talking to these folk there about election. And here again, we're dealing with God's side of the ledger, his side that you and I do not see, nor have we ever seen it. But there are certain great axioms of truth that we must put down. I remember that when I studied plain geometry, they put down certain things that didn't attempt to prove them. They just said, these are true, you have to accept it. And one of them is, a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Well, I've never had an occasion to argue with that. But nobody's ever proven that to me, and yet there is a proposition in geometry that will prove that. But nevertheless, there are certain things that you accept as facts without proof. And one of the things that you have to accept is the fact that there are certain things that you can't prove that are true. And now, with that thought in mind, well, let's approach this here. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And the very interesting thing is, Paul doesn't attempt here to argue it, to prove it. He states it as a fact. Now, let's look at it from maybe a little different viewpoint. We're talking now about the sovereign right of the Creator. We must recognize today something that has really been basic in the founding of this nation, but we're so far from it today that several outstanding historians, including Dr. Heimer of the University of Michigan, that America for the past 50 years has been in control of men who do not know the origin and the beginning of our nation. And that is the tremendous impact that the Puritans made upon this nation. Now, one of the great 
truths that the Puritans stood for, and it's basic to their entire lifestyle, and it was the sovereignty of God. Now, that's back of election. That's back, actually, of all of life today. It is the sovereign right of the Creator. We need to recognize that He has created this universe. And I'm not concerned now with how He did it. I'm not concerned about the story in Genesis. I'm just concerned about the fact in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there are those that are willing to say he created, but they deny him the right to direct the universe. They deny him the right to give a purpose to it. And may I say to you today that you and I are living in a universe that God created and that this universe exists for his glory. And even in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember the Lord Jesus Christ said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you. Oh, no. Glorify your Father which is in heaven. May I say to you today, Christian friend especially, and anyone else that's listening in, God is the Creator, and this universe exists for His glory. He is God, and beside Him, There's none other. And he doesn't look to anybody for advice. He's running this universe for his own purpose. He's directing it for his own glory. And you and I live in a universe today that actually is theocentric. That means God-centered. It is not anthropocentric, man-centered. That today it is not geocentric, that is earth-centered, but it is uranocentric, that is, it's heaven-centered. Now, today, this is God's universe, and he's running it his way. Now, something else needs to be said. God is no tyrant. God is righteous. God is just. God is holy. And everything that God does, it's right. Now, you may not think so, And I want to say this to you. I have news for you. If you do not think God is right in what he's doing today and that he's not following the best plan, the news I got for you is you are wrong. God's not wrong. You are wrong. And you are the person that need to get your thinking correct because if you don't, you are out of step with the universe. This universe exists for him, for his glory, for his purpose. And there's nothing going to happen that's not going to happen today apart from his glory. And he's running this universe today. Now, with that in mind, let's look at something else. Have you ever stopped to think that the very fact that you were born at all, that's something, you could have been non-existent. I could have been non-existent. May I say to you, he never came around to me and said, Vernon McGee, do you want to come into existence? Well, wasn't in existence. He's the one that thought of it. He's the one that's responsible. And he never asked me whether I wanted to be male or female. He never asked me whether I wanted to be born in this day that I've been born in. 
I did not choose my parents. I did not decide whether my parents would be godly or whether they would be wealthy. They weren't either. God today is running this universe. It's his universe. You may not like it, but it just happens to be the way that it is. And no one today is chosen against his will. And no one is rejected against his will. And God is right in all that he does. Paul says in Romans, he says, Is there unrighteousness with God? And he doesn't let you or me answer it. He answers it. God forbid. Or let it not be. My friend, God is right in all that he does. And today we need to get back to that place and recognize that we are just creatures. And when you get back to the place that we're just creatures and get back to the position that you and I are not only creatures, but we are totally depraved. Oh, now I know that's not popular today. We like to pat each other on the back. In fact, we like to scratch each other's back and tell each other how wonderful we are. That's the reason they hand out loving cups and all of these knife and fork clubs. They're always recognizing somebody's the outstanding something or other. The human race has to do that to bolster us up, to make us think that we're something down here, you see. But we're in rebellion against God. And the very fact that God's even considered us. And do you know that those early Puritans that founded this country, we don't think much of them today, but my friend, you and I are living, as far as I can tell, the greatest nation that's ever been on this earth, and we are living here because of them. We didn't do it. They did do it. Other men have labored, and we've entered into their labors. And one of the things that they emphasized was the liberty of each individual for private judgment. Even this sinner has that right. Why? Because no other sinner has any right to make a decision for you and me. And today, you and I have enjoyed the freedom that we've enjoyed because of these at the beginning. But this generation doesn't even know what it's all about. And that's the reason we can't make democracy work. You can't make democracy work until you know something of the sovereignty of God and you recognize you're a creature and you'll fall down before him. Now, maybe you won't like this verse, but you take it up with Paul and the Holy Spirit. Don't take it up with me. I had nothing to do with it. If I had, I'd have probably softened this down. But he says, knowing, brethren, beloved, you're election of God. Now, maybe you don't like it, but that's the way it happened. And God's running this universe. Instead of getting a little placard and starting around and protesting today, why don't you fall down on your face before him and thank him that he even brought you into existence, that he's given you the opportunity as a free moral agent to make a decision for him. And his invitation still goes out. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And my friend, if you're thirsty, come on. <laughs> you say you're not thirsty? Forget it. That's what he says. I think God is holding out to this lost world today a salvation, and he's saying to men and women, take it or leave it. 
And that's where your freedom comes in. You either choose him or you'll reject him. You've got to do one or the other. And that's where your liberty comes in and your freedom. Great verse, is it not? It put a backbone back of us instead of a wishbone. And it will make us the kind of men and women that we ought to have today, not these Tweedledums and Tweedledees that today are trying to please everybody. Now, will you notice, as we come to verse 5, and here's another tremendous verse. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Now, will you notice this? Paul says, you knew that when we came among you, we were just human beings, just weak human beings with lips of clay, with tongues of clay, and all we could do was say words. But we gave out the Word of God, and the Word of God came to you, not just in word only, but in power. Notice this. And in the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, this makes this job that I have, and it's a job, I love it, the most wonderful job in the world. I love to teach the Word of God. And you know why? Because if I'm giving out the Word of God today, it's just words as far as Vernon McGee is concerned, and no one is more conscious of that than I am right now, by the way. But may I say this to you, that if the Spirit of God will take these words and use them, I tell you, they'll be powerful. And that's the thrill that comes to me in these letters. And I've got right here on my desk now, I suppose, 500 letters. I've been through them. I can't share them all with you. I wish I could. Of this man, and this is one that just catches my eye here. This man lives back east. His wife said that the first time that she turned me on, that he spent 30 minutes cussing this preacher. And I don't think he thought very much of me. But she kept tuning in the radio. And one day he argued back with me. And then she said, one day I forgot to turn it on, and he reminded me of it. And then he listened. And then one day he knelt by the radio and accepted Christ as his Savior. Now, friends, if you think that that's because... I'm a super-duper salesman. Well, may I say to you, I just am not a super-duper salesman. I'm not even a salesman. I don't think I could give away $5 gold pieces down in downtown Los Angeles to everybody that came by. They'd think there was a trick in it. And if I gave away $5 gold pieces, there would be a trick in it. No question about that. But the thing that is so tremendous is that the Spirit of God will use the Word of God. And that's our confidence. Now, I not only believe... Now, will you hear me very carefully? I not only believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that it's inerrant. Now, wait just a minute. Don't write me now, somebody, and explain to me all the introductions and all the problems about texts. I've been through seminary. I actually have taught introductory courses. 
And I think I know a little about that. But I accept the Word of God as the inerrant Word of God and that it is God speaking to us. Now, that doesn't end it. I go farther than that. I believe that when the Spirit of God will take this Word of God here, that it can reach into your heart and my heart, into your life and my life, and that it can transform it, and that people are born again, not by the weakness of the human flesh, not by just saying a few words here on the radio of hocus-pocus, acracadabra, and that type of thing, but that actually, born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. And that the Spirit of God can take the word of God and make it real to you. Oh, my friends, I believe that the Word of God is that kind of thing. Now, I don't think he can take the numbers and the telephone book and do much with them. And I don't think he can take the Sears and Roebuck catalog and do anything with it. I do not believe that the Spirit of God will take the popular magazines today and do anything with them. But I believe that the Spirit of God can and will take the Word of God here and make it what it is, the only miracle there is today. Therefore, I believe that I do not need gimmicks on this program. I do not have to sing you to sleep. I do not have to lull you into some comfortable place. I went on this radio with the idea I'd give out the Word of God. And by now, I don't know how many has tuned me out, but that won't make a better difference to me. If the Spirit of God doesn't want it done this way, then he gets somebody else to do it another way. But as long as I'm on the air, I'm giving out the Word of God as it is the Word of God. And that this Word of God is miraculous. And you don't need all these gimmicks that we've got today. All of this business of putting on some kind of a program to attract people... My friend, the Word of God today, if we only believed it, let me even make it personal. If I only believed it like I should believe it, I could say to you very definitely, very positively, then God in a mighty way would use the Word of God. The Word of God went into Thessalonica, a Roman colony, which means it was not only pagan and heathen, but it was controlled by one of the greatest powers, military, government, political powers that the world has ever seen. And the Word of God went in there and reached hearts and lives and transformed them. That's what I mean, and it can still do it in this day. And I only wish I believed it like I should. Now, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus himself said would happen. He said in John 16, verse 7, "...nevertheless I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you, and when he is come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment." Now, the Holy Spirit today is in the world. And he alone can convict. I cannot. No one else can. And therefore, 
I want the Word of God here to go out, not just in word only, and I want it to go out like that, the fact of the Word. That's important, but it needs no embellishment. It just needs to be given out, and it needs to communicate meaningfully to the hearts and lives. And if you listen, if you're an unsaved person, if you listen, friends, Jesus Christ can transform your heart and life, change you from an unbeliever and a lost sinner to become a son of God. And friends, that's the greatest miracle that can take place this day, and there's nothing quite like it. Now, the first thing that is necessary is for a person to hear the Word. That's important. That's the factual basis. They must hear the gospel. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. That's the natural part of it. But that doesn't end it, because the Word of God is a supernatural book. It's one that the Spirit of God uses. Therefore, it's essential that the Spirit of God take the facts and make them real to our hearts. In other words, actually perform a miracle. In other words, without the Holy Spirit, the gospel is just words. That's all. With the Holy Spirit, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Now, Paul moved on to verse 6, and this is tremendous through this area here in 1 Thessalonians. I marvel at it because Paul is talking to a group of folk that are just a few months old. I read a letter of these people that have just been saved eight months, and they're just drinking in the Word of God today. They even call it dessert. Well, just think of these new saints there in Thessalonica. And Paul is talking to them about election, and he's talking to them about the great doctrines of the Christian faith. Now he's talking about how the gospel came to them, just not in word only, but actually in much assurance. Now we find here that he says, "...and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit." Now Paul could cite Silas and Timothy and himself as examples. I personally would hesitate to give myself as an example. I don't think I'm a very good example. But just think that this man, Paul the Apostle, out in the Roman Empire, going from place to place, and he can give himself as an example. Now, he says here, and I think it related to him and to his followers here, that having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are two words that actually are, I suppose, antipodes apart. They are as far apart as the east is from the west. And that is suffering or affliction and joy. They don't go together. They don't belong together. Well, they're as extreme as night is from daylight, as cold is from hot. They're extreme in opposite direction. You just couldn't get them. 
any farther apart. And we do not associate them together today. If a person is suffering and in affliction, he can't have any joy according to our natural way of looking at it. And if he's having joy in his life, then he sure can't be suffering. And yet, there have been wonderful saints of God that have endured affliction and at the same time have had the joy of the Lord in their hearts. Now, that's real triumph. I hear a great deal today, and I'm an example of it, and I just thank God for healing. Great many people talk about how wonderful it is. God is healing. I want to say this to you. I know some wonderful saints of God. Lots more wonderful than I ever hoped to be. And these people are lying right now on a bed of pain, a bed of affliction. And they have the joy of the Lord in their heart. And my friend, there's not a person today that's attending a nightclub or going to a show are participating today in any kind of an entertainment, going someplace to be entertained, you cannot sit there and suffer and enjoy it at the same time. The world can't put those two together. Paul says here, you receive the word in much affliction. It was suffering, persecution, heartache, heartbreak. But there was the joy of the Holy Spirit. My friend, that's what you call bittersweet. Or they have a Chinese dish in Chinese restaurant that is called the sweet sour or the sour sweet. And there is that in life. There can be that which is sour and bitter. And at the same time, there can be sweetness in the heart and life. There was a woman who is a famous poetess here in Southern California. You may have read, and I'm sure you've read some of her poems, but I had the privilege of baptizing her. She was a member of my church. We baptized her in a bathtub and couldn't take her anywhere else. And the minute I touched her, she screamed because of the fact that that woman suffered all the time. She wrote her last, I think, book of poetry. She sent me a copy. The title of the book was Head Held High. That's great. Head Held High. In the midst of extreme human suffering, she had the joy of the Lord in her life. And I always left there having been ministered unto, and I never felt like I did very much ministering at a time like that. How wonderful it is to see today Christians that have had that kind of an experience and they still can rejoice in the Lord. May I say to you, friends, these are two words that you don't put together except in a Christian heart, and in a Christian life, and not always in all of those, of course. But here was the example yonder in Thessalonica. And as a result, Paul says now in verse 7, "...so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia." 
In other words, Achaia was a province of Greece. And in all of Greece, actually, and in all of Macedonia, which took in the Greco-Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great, as far as the European section of it was concerned, this church in Thessalonica, a Roman colony, in just a matter of a few months, was an example to all the others. What a glorious, wonderful testimony that they had. Today, we have examples in many places of individual Christians. But actually, there are very few churches today as such that are known far and near as being examples of the Christian faith. Very candidly, that's a strange thing, that we do not have more local churches. Now, it's been my privilege to get about over the country recently quite a bit, and I have been in several hundred churches since I've retired. And I could name several that I'm confident are examples today. Several churches that today are examples And I'm not going to name one or two, because if I did, I'd leave out some others that ought to be named, and I sure can't call the role of those churches. But there are some today. But you can't say all churches would be that. But now this church in Thessalonica was an example. Now, verse 8, it says, "...for from you sounded out the word of the Lord." not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Now, I think what Paul is saying here is in all the world, as far as he was concerned, where he had been, because he's saying, when I get there, the reputation of this church has gone ahead of me, and they're already talking about this church. And therefore, Paul says, it hasn't been necessary for me to say anything about the church in Thessalonica because they're already talking about it. And that would be confined, of course, to the travels of Paul wherever he had been. But it reveals something of the great reputation of this church in that day. Now, we looked at the ninth verse, the ninth and tenth verses that conclude this chapter in connection with verse 3 with the work of faith and the labor of love and patience of hope. You have all three illustrated here. Now, I want to look at them now in a little different way in connection with this here. He says three things here. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. Now, three things took place, three things that Paul could mention about the work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. The first, you have how ye turn to God from idols. That's the work of faith. Number two, to serve the living and true God. That's the labor of love. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, that is the patience of hope. Now, let's look at it just a little bit differently. Paul is saying here that when he arrived in Thessalonica, 
He did not announce that he would give a series of messages denouncing idolatry or telling them about all the errors that there was in the worship of Apollo or of Venus or any other of the gods and goddesses of the Roman Empire. What Paul did, he arrived in Thessalonica and he preached Christ. And when he preached Christ, they turned to God from idols. Now, they didn't turn from idols to God. Now, somebody says, you're splitting hairs. I sure am. But these are hairs that need to be split, friend. And we need to do some straight thinking today. And I want you to hear this very carefully now. Because we are hearing today that repentance is essential to salvation. That you must repent and then believe. As if they're two things. They're both wrapped up in the same package and you have them both right here. And did you know that the word repentance is given to the church. You take the seven churches of Asia in Revelation 2 and 3, and he says to every one of those churches, the church is to repent. Now, the church today is trying to tell everybody outside to repent. The church needs to repent. You and I as believers today need to repent. And I find out that we need to do a great deal of it today. I believe this is the time many of us need to get out on our faces before God and repent. And not run around and tell the unsaved man down the street. Now, Paul didn't tell him that. Paul didn't tell him how wrong he was in worshiping idols. Paul preached Christ. And when he preached Christ, they turned to God from idols. Now, I want you to see something. I think this is very important. When they turned to God, that's the work of faith, you see. That's what faith did. This is the work of God, that you believe on him. That's what the Lord Jesus said. Now, they turned to God from idols. But wait a minute. They turned from idols, too. Yes, that's right. That's repentance. But that followed, didn't precede. You see, when they turned to God, they automatically turned from idols. I want you to see something. Take your hand right now. And turn the front part of your hand, the inside of your hand, to you. Now turn it around. Now when you turned it around, the minute that you turn the back side of your hand to you, what happened? Why well, you turn the front part of it away from you. You can't turn to Christ without turning from something, friends. And that from something is repentance. We need to hold up Jesus Christ as a Savior from sin, that you're a lost sinner, and you can sit there and weep about your sins till judgment day, and it won't do you one bit of good. I know a man that's an alcoholic. He died an alcoholic. And that man could sit in my study and cry about the fact he was an alcoholic and a drunkard and how terrible he was. But he never did turn to Christ. You see, he could repent all over the place. Great many people can shed tears, and tears are all right, provided they mean something. My dad used to tell about that little boat that went up and down the Mississippi River. When it was going upstream carrying a load, it was in trouble because it had a little bitty boiler and a great big whistle, 
And when they'd pull down on that whistle, the boat wouldn't go upstream and start drifting downstream. Now, there are a lot of people today got a little boil and a great big whistle. They can repent and shed tears all over the place. Friends, that won't do you a bit of good. The important thing, when you turn to Christ, you're going to turn from something. You'll turn from sin. If you don't turn from sin, you haven't turned to Christ. Because, you see, when I turn the inside of my hand around, away from me, the back part just turned toward me. The other part, it had to get around on the other side. You can't turn to Christ without turning from something, and that's repentance. And these people turn to God from idol. And that turning from those idols, and I imagine many of those people wept over the time they wasted in worshiping idols. Now then, not only did that, how you turn to God from idols, but they turned to serve the living and true God. You see, they now are serving God. And that means that there was a labor of love. And you can't serve Christ unless you love him. He made that clear. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, suppose you don't love him. Well, there's no commandments for you. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. Well, somebody says, I'm going out and preach the gospel. You mean you don't love him? He says, stay home. You say, how do you know? Well, because that's one of his commandments. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. That's what he said. That's his commandment. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Yes, Lord, but I don't love you. I think he'd say, stay home. You remember Simon Peter? He said to him, feed my sheep. Do you love me, Simon Peter? He didn't say, why in the world did you deny me? Do you promise you're going to do better if I let you preach the sermon on the day of Pentecost? He never said anything like that. He said, do you love me, Simon Peter? And if you love him, you can serve him. If you don't love him, I say, forget it. You say, that's rather harsh. I didn't say that. He said that. If you love me, keep my commandments. Oh, today we need a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Takes that to really serve him. Now, we come to this next one. And to wait for his Son from heaven. Now, waiting for his son doesn't mean to sit down, apparently, because you're going to serve him, you see, if you love him. And if you wait for him, it's because you're, you're not sitting down. It means you're busy. I remember that when I first went to Cleveland, Texas as pastor, all the downtown churches were having outdoor services on the lawn of the First Baptist Church. And since I was a new preacher come to town, they wanted to see what kind of a preacher I was. Why, they asked me to preach the first night I was there. So I preached that first night. And the next day, one of the leading, well, officers, and I was going to call the name of his office, but you'd then know his denomination, and I am not trying to pick any one out to pick on today. I feel good today and don't want to pick on anybody. So may I say that he was an officer in one of the leading denominations of the South. And he called me the next day, and he said, Say, I heard your sermon last night. And apparently he'd heard that I was one of these very peculiar fundamentalists. I believed in the coming of Christ. You know, I was a fundamentalist and a premillennialist. He said, You know, he says, You didn't sound to me last night like one of these fellows that has his nose pressed against the window waiting for the Lord to come. 
And so I thought, well, if he's going to play like that, I'll play like that. Well, I said, no. I said, I've never felt that I was one of the fellows that had my nose pressed against the window waiting for the Lord to come. And I said, you know, it's quite interesting that those today that are waiting for the Lord to come don't have their nose pressed against the window. Mine's flat, but that's not what made it flat. And I don't believe that those who really are looking for the Lord to come are going to press their nose against the window. He says, what do you mean? Well, I said, let's just look at it in a very factual way. I said, your denomination and my denomination are calling missionaries back from the field. And that was during the Depression, by the way. And I said, the China Inland Mission, that is premillennial, is asking for 100 more missionaries this year. And we're bringing them back from the field. I said, who's got whose nose pushed against whose window? I said, believe me, I'm of the opinion that the ones who are waiting for the Lord to come are not pressing the nose against the window. To wait for the Lord from heaven doesn't mean to sit down. It means to be busy for the Lord, by the way. And that's the patience of hope, that you just go on serving the Lord and give out the Word of God. Because the coming of Christ to take his church out of the world is not an escape mechanism at all. It is an incentive to serve him today and give out the Word of God. I've often wished that he'd come when I'm making a tape for radio. He'd catch me at a good time. There are other times that I may not be in as favorable a position. Maybe I'm driving with my wife, and she's been doing some backseat driving. And when she does backseat driving, I do some sideseat driving. And I tell her she's not to drive. I'm one back of the steering wheel. I wouldn't want him to come at one of those moments, but I sure would like for him to come while I'm making this tape, even right now. Even so come, Lord Jesus.